Well, here we are at the end of 1 Samuel, wrapping up today, Lord willing, um, in a time of continued and seemingly constant turmoil in our world, um, our prayer is that God would bring us wisdom and comfort and peace um, when all else brings apparently none of these. Um, and, and I'm not willing to let, um, to fail to give the honor due to this passage, so I apologize if it ends up uh, bleeding over quite literally into uh, next week, into Advent. It did not first service, so I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, I consider that something of a miracle, um, like the sun standing still in the sky for this uh, sermon to have made it in the 35, 40 minutes that I have. So this passage is about a lot of pain, physical and emotional, um, and I want to afford it all the attention it deserves. We knew going into 1 Samuel, we knew that there would come a day when we would have to mourn Saul. Um, those who love him will fast seven days um, to honor him and to mourn him. And we've tried for a long time to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know if you remember that, but over the last year, year and a half, as we've gone through 1 Samuel and wrestled through different passages, trying to give, trying to like him, trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, trying to, to understand him. And, and I even, even was questioning why. What is that in us? And, and I think rightly, hopefully, um, we see some of ourselves in Saul, we see his impatience and disobedience. We see his, uh, the, the way he is impetuous with his actions, and, and we see these different things, and we see those in us. And I think that helps. But I also think um, Alistair Begg had some insight here. Um, after writing my sermon and going back and, and listening to his teaching on this same passage, a couple of insights jumped out at me. One, I think he's right that probably all of us have known a kid like Saul. We've all known this kid who was born into a great family, and they had great potential, and have all the genetic advantages, they were gifted, they standed, as it were, head and shoulders above their peers. And then we saw them squander it. We've seen them make very little of their lives, and our hearts are broken for that family. Maybe that's been in your family. And, and I think that's part of it, this, is we, we want this to be, we want to like Saul and we want to be encouraged by his life, and yet we're not. And let it be a good lesson, a good, I guess, warning to all of us, young people in particular. Let me encourage you, um, don't squander the amazing gifts that God has given you, whatever those are. Don't squander the gifts that your family, your parents, those who love you and have taken you in and chosen you, and those who, those who are your friends and your family, and of course, Almighty God. What The gifts they've gifted us with, we don't want to ever squander that. Old people, whatever days, years, weeks, months we have left in our lives, those, those days, days and years are precious, and we, we want to redeem them well, especially because the Redeemer of all things have given them to us. I want to live them out well in the way that He would have us live them out. This book, 1 Samuel, started with a family coming to worship at a tabernacle, and it ends with a devastating battle in the Valley of Jezreel. It began with God hearing the prayers of a faithful woman and the birth of a prophet, priest, and judge. It ends with God refusing to honor a king who had honored himself above God, and not the birth of a prophet, but the death of a king. In the Hebrew Scriptures, this book continues through what we call 2 Samuel. I'm not sure yet, but I'm thinking maybe in the new year, I want to at least, even I don't want to right now, teach through the entirety of 2 Samuel. Um, I, I may take just a few weeks and teach through some of the highlights, the lessons 
of 2 Samuel to kind of put a bow on, on all of those lessons there. Um, and speaking of bows, it's 29 days until Christmas. No extra charge for that warning, right? Some of, some of you need to get on Amazon fast. Okay, there's something... There is something, by the way, of an outline for 1 Samuel, certainly a summary of what God is going to do in advance. You may remember it. We talked about it on October 2nd, 2022. Hannah had been blessed in the tabernacle of the Lord. She had been praying for this child, and God had provided. In response to this incredible miracle, she wrote a song. It's beautiful. And after a year of studying the lives of Samuel and Saul and Jonathan and David and Achish and Michal and Goliath and Ahimelech and Abigail and the Amalekites and the Ziphites and all these others, listen to it again and see if Hannah wasn't warning us about what we were about to read, wasn't highlighting and even outlining for us the things we were about to read. 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to the grave, or Sheol, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So have we seen God break those who made an enemy of him? Have we seen God give victory and strength to those bearing his anointing? Remember, God has removed his anointing from Saul because of his consistent defiance of God's instructions. Have we seen God even raise someone up from the grave, so to speak? Have we seen him raise a commoner to the position of a prince? Have we seen him provide bread to the hungry? Have we seen him thunder against his enemies? We have. All of those things that Hannah told us would happen, we've seen them all happen. So now we wrap up the end of the story of 1 Samuel. Sadly, it ends with God breaking, finally, one of his adversaries into pieces. So here we are, a thousand years before Christ. Chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now, I, always, I want to picture a great and mighty battle here. I want to, I want to always picture... Um, uh, this great defiant last stand of Saul and Jonathan and his sons and his bodyguards here on Mount Gilboa. <clears throat> I'm growing up. Um, I was one of those kids, you might have guessed this. Um, I was one of those kids who lined my walls with posters and photographs, like literally wallpapered it. My, my dad had to love that after I left and had to repaint the room with all the pinholes in it. But, but that, was, that was what my room looked like. And one of the posters I had hanging in my room was this one. Um, which is a, a depiction from the Lord of the Rings of kind of one of the last battles at the gate. 
And we get to see the heroes in action. We see Gandalf and the eagles. We see Strider and the rangers. And, and we, it's this great epic picture of this battle that's, that they're doomed to defeat unless, um, unless the, the, not to give anything away, unless the plot follows through the way it's supposed to, for those of you who haven't read it yet. So, so this is the kind of thing that I want. I love stuff like this. I think it's really cool. Um, by the way, uh, I couldn't find it online forever, and I eventually had to search the word vintage. <laughs> so that's where I am in life. Things I had on my wall are now vintage. All right, but instead of some kind of grandstand, the men of Israel flee before the Philistines, not something you want to see. And in fact, they're not even fast enough to run away. They get caught on Mount Geboa. Verse 2, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. It's so hard for me to picture this. Um, there must be, this must be God's judgment being poured out on Saul and his family because I can't accept otherwise that any number of Philistines could have taken down Jonathan. I'm heartbroken for him. But in fact, it wasn't the Philistines that defeated Jonathan. It was Saul's defiance of God that defeated Jonathan and two of his other sons. Even so, I bet it wasn't easy to take him down. We may even get a hint here that like Boromir from the Lord of the Rings, they stood off at a distance and filled him full of arrows because they were afraid to get too close to him to fight him hand to hand. Jonathan deserves a better death than this. And it makes me sad that he went down like this. On that note, um, this season is one of the toughest when it comes to our own personal loss personal losses. It's intriguing that Christmas has become that in our nation, and I think there's probably a normal aspect to that that I'll reference, but I think there's also something that we've broken. We've done something wrong here. Um, as a therapist, often um, there's this stress test. I'll ask clients sometimes the amount of anxiety and stress and stuff that's in their lives, and I'll ask a bunch of questions, and I'm supposed to add a certain number of points, and, and it's, the question is, have you faced any of these things within the last year? And you get a certain number of points, and if you're over about 300, then you're going to be showing stress symptoms. Don't be surprised you're having stress symptoms. You're going to have stress symptoms if your score is above 300. But always one of the things that struck me was that the last thing on the list says Christmas, 20 points. In other words, have you experienced Christmas within the last year is what's being asked. And if you have, you get 20 points of stress automatically. I don't think that was the plan. I don't think that was meant to be what Christmas was, was this hyper-stressful um, uh, time when, when we're, like, we're more likely to be anxious and depressed because of the pressure and stress that we feel. Now, part of it also, of course, is the fact that this is the time of the year during the holidays when we have empty seats at the table. The people who we think should be there aren't. And so it, it draws our attention to our loss. It draws the attention to who's died, who's not here for the first time or the fifth time or the tenth time or the fiftieth time who should be here. And I think that's a, a normal and a healthy aspect to any of these significant things when we face grief and death. And the Bible does not shy away from the things that we really face. I'd love to really encourage each of us to keep one another in our prayers. And as an as a added bonus, I would say if you've not checked in on somebody in a while, check in on them. This is a good time to do that. Check in to see how they're doing. If you've not seen them in church for a while, check on them. Where have they gone? I think it's an important part of being an inviting church. Many of us are struggling with loneliness and grief, and that gets amped up during this time. So I'd love to encourage you to do that. All right, back to our passage. Verse 4, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, 
Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But the armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. This, this passage it really draws highlights, draws our attention to the fact that something's very broken and wrong here. Here's one of the things. Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we get a hint of something that's wrong about this story. 16 verse 21, and David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. So who should have been on that mountain side by side with Saul on Gilboa as the Philistines closed in? David should have been. David was Saul's armor bearer, but Saul had spent the last 20 years driving David away from him, seeking to kill him. Saul had spent the last maybe longer than that driving Samuel, one of the greatest godliest men who've ever lived, away from him. Saul had isolated himself, and the key people he should have been surrounded with weren't there. It's not David. And David, this battle might have gone very differently if, David's, if David and his 600 cutthroats had been handy, had been there to defend Saul. This battle might have gone very, very differently. Those men were capable of taking on much larger forces and did it over and over again and won. And if nothing else, in this moment, David would have been doing what neither Saul nor his armor bearer are doing, and that is calling upon the name of the Lord. If you recall, it may be that this is just some unnamed Hebrew soldier. That's most likely. But it's actually legend that this is Doeg. Uh, Doeg, you'll remember him, the psychopathic murderer of the priests and families of Nob. And here you find him in a pitched battle, and instead of being all tough like he was against unarmed priests and families, now you find him trembling with such fear that he can't even move his weapon. Certainly not someone prepared to turn the tide of the battle. Instead, he gave in to despair just like his king did, as neither of them were calling out to the Lord. So let me take a minute, as seems appropriate, and talk about suicide. Now, this is an important topic, and it's an important topic in our culture. It's a leading cause of death in our culture is suicide. Um, and there are two sermons on our website that the entire sermon is largely about suicide. But this is one of the seven, maybe eight times that we run into this topic in the Bible and is thrown in our face, and we talk about what the Bible has in front of us, not what we want to talk about. Most people can only name one person who committed suicide in the Bible. There's at least seven. Saul, his armor bearer, a later king of Israel named Zimri, two earlier judges named Abimelech, and of course Samson, an advisor of David named Ahithophel, and finally the one most of us know, Judas. Saul follows the path of suicide that is most common, I think, um, which is that a person gets trapped into a way of thinking that says there's only two paths forward, a short, relatively quick, and painless path, or a long, relatively painful path. And those are the two paths ahead of me. And that person gets trapped into that way of thinking. Now, in the case of Saul, that is literally maybe the case. He literally has two choices. He's filled full of arrows. He's going to die. He's either going to die relatively quickly at his own hands or the hands of his shield bearer or his armor bearer, or he's going to get captured, injured, wounded by the Philistines, and let them, they're going to see how long they can drag out that death. So I don't, I don't say that Saul is wrong in his conclusion that he's only got two choices, and that may really be the case. <clears throat> it's our instinct in our culture to not have a sophisticated understanding of suicide. We, we quickly default to things like you know somebody being a coward, taking a coward's way out, or taking the easy way out, or whatever. And sometimes that's just not the case. It is not true that all suicide is sin. 
Um, there are cases where those are really only two choices. I don't think we judge too harshly those who jumped out of the World Trade Center rather than burned to death, those who decided to fall to death rather than burn to death. Certainly, we don't, we don't call a coward the Marine who jumps on a grenade that rolls into the room with a bunch of his um, soldier, fellow soldiers. We honor that suicide. Of course, there also can be sin connected to suicide, as you would expect, um, that's where, where Saul is trapped here. He fears the torture of the Philistines. Um, the sin, when there is one connected to suicide, can be any number of things. I have engaged with people through, because of their anger or their hatred or desire for revenge is actually what motivated their suicide. Very often it comes with a loss of faith that comes with a flesh that's just exhausted, that just wants to quit no matter what the cost of quitting is. I think we can all understand that. I think we probably all have experienced, many of us, if not all, have experienced those moments of saying, this is one of those moments when I would just be fine if you could just stop the world and let me off. So what do we do in those moments? Well, the truth is, there's usually not only two paths. Unless you're stuck in a, in a building that's on fire burning up towards you, or you're stuck on the mountain in Gilboa filled full of arrows with the enemies closing in, you probably have more than just two choices. You have three and four and eight and... 10 and 12 and thousands of different choices that you can choose from the options ahead of you. But we come to believe there's only two, and then we feel like all that we can do next is quit. And my encouragement to you is don't quit. Don't quit. There are many who love you, and even if there weren't, if you're going to die, redeem your life well. Die on mission like the Apostle Paul did. In many ways, you can imagine that Paul kind of committed suicide by Roman. He put himself in a position to, to, to teach the gospel until somebody finally killed him for it. And Saul was not, and Paul was not sad to go, as he made clear to us, for him to die was the, the better choice for him. He preferred it. So if you're going to die anyway, go on the mission field and, and share the gospel until somebody kills you for it. That's my encouragement. Find a third option and a fourth and a fifth and live a life that's inviting and filled with the gospel and is on mission all the time. And when things start to be filled with despair, when you really get to that point, remember to look up. Keep in mind, remember, this passage and chapter 30 before are happening simultaneously. They're happening at exactly the same time. Saul gets to this moment when he's realizing, I have lost everything. Everything is gone. And what does he do? He looks to his own sword in that moment. Now, I don't know that God would have saved him. I have no reason to believe God would save him. God had judged him and found him guilty and was going to kill him that day. But he doesn't even look up. Remember that literally at this moment, at this moment, David has faced the exact same scenario. He has come home. He has been humiliated by his lords and his leaders. He's been rejected by those who are nearest to him. He comes home to find his home burned, his wives and his children taken he is in a total hope. He has no hope of recovering them. He has no reason to think he could ever recover them. And his own people, his own friends and family, turn on him. They're going to stone him to death. How about that for a moment of absolute despair? And what does David do in that moment? That's when David finally looks up. That's when David finally looks up, and it says he strengthens himself in the Lord. So when you're at that moment that you're ready to quit, my encouragement is instead, look up. Do it again. And you go, well, I'm just going to be depressed again tomorrow. Uh-huh. 
and look up and do it again. This isn't some easy answer. Take two Bible verses and call me next week. You'll be fine. That's not what we're doing here. I'm acknowledging those moments of despair are very real. And some of you face them every single day of your life. And what I tell you is, look up, strengthen yourself in the Lord, keep slogging forward. My prayer is that God will provide peace for you, that God will provide freedom from that for you. But even if he doesn't, we have hope in him. That's my encouragement to you. Reach out. Don't quit. There are those of us who are happy. If, if you reach out directly to me, I'm there. I'm suicidal. I don't know how much longer I can do this. We'll get you whatever help we can possibly get for you. Keep in mind, as discouraging as this passage is, David strengthens himself in the Lord in almost the identical circumstances. In verse 5, when his armor bearer, who we just said, <clears throat> despairs in his fear as well, saw that Saul was dead, he fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men, all on the same day together. This doesn't mean all of the Jewish soldiers. We see many of them later um, in the second Samuel, in Second Samuel. But all of Saul's bodyguards and three of his four sons die with him that day. It's similar. People point out this is a, as Christ-like as Saul seems to get. On a hill far away, a man gave his life. In this moment, we see Saul's willingness to go to battle today, this day, as potentially, we hope, an act of courage, maybe even an act of faith. Here, Saul had been told numerous times he was going to die when he went to battle, and he went anyway. This is, this is it. I, I, of course, it's possible. It's denial. I'm not really going to die. Or defiance. You know, you can try to come get me if you want, God. But I would like to think not so. Maybe that's just me trying to give him the benefit of the doubt one more time. When he dies, as he dies, David is defeating the Amaleks, the Amalekites, excuse me, in the south. Verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley saw, uh, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. Now, how about this for an utter defeat? The people of Israel are so afraid. We've got a little map here. The people of Israel are so afraid... Now here they are fighting these battles over here near Jezreel in the Jezreel Valley. So the Philistines had come up, come down the Jezreel Valley. This is the big fight, the big battle that we're having. And it's such an utter defeat that the people in Bet-Shan and all, even across the Jordan on this side, Bet-Shan is a fortress city right here at the entrance. You can imagine it is a fortified city. It's one of our favorite places to visit when we're in Israel is Bet-Shan right here. And so I'll point it over here as well, Bet-Shan. And so here you have, means the house of safety, house of security, a fortified place. So, so that's what's going on. And the people of Bet-Shan, for example, they just abandon. They, they don't stay prepared to fight the Philistines. They just abandon the city entirely, and the Philistines move in. Um, the key point of defense of Israel is Bet-Shan, and now it's gone. At some point, we do know David is going to retake it, um, since it's listed among the cities under Solomon in 1 Kings 4. If you want to look it up, in 2 Samuel chapter 8 is probably where David takes that city. It doesn't list it in detail. <clears throat> so meanwhile, so here's what's going on right now. Down south, David has defeated the Amalekites and is probably counting out the spoils for his men at the brooks of Basor. Meanwhile, here, the Philistines are counting out their spoil on Gilboa and surrounding cities. Verse 8, the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul... 
And his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor on the temple of Ashtaroth, in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. So you remember early on in his career, Saul prophesied, and when he did so, he stripped to prophesy for some reason. We watched him again strip in order to hide his identity when he went to see the witch of Endor. And now finally, in the most humiliating way possible, he's stripped for the last time. His head is taken to one temple, the chronicler tells us. His armor is taken to another one, and his body is hung on the walls of the newly abandoned fortified city of Bethshan. Now, you go, wow, what is that about? Well, if you're not from East Texas or Central Texas, you may not know why you hang the bodies of your enemy um, on the walls. But in this part of the world, we have an example of it. That if you know any ranchers, when they kill a coyote, they don't just leave it, they don't bury it, they hang it somewhere to scare off the other coyotes. In other words, this is the way you treat a dog. A wild dog, not even a tame one. This is the way you treat a dog. To this day, you will actually hear, um, especially if you get the correct translation of the Arabic, very often the, in people in the Arabic world and anti-Semitic people refer to Jews as dogs. That's how they're treated. Be afraid. Be warned. Don't come here. We'll take you out. So Bethshan, now let me show you something fascinating. Because of its location, the city has always represented the duality, one of our favorite sites in Israel. There's so much to learn here. But so here's what's interesting. So here again, you have Bethshan over here, way over here at this, at this area. Down here on the other side of the Jordan River, 13 miles away, it's too small to be on this map, is a city called Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh means born of pain. Or a heap of stones, like not a good heap, like just a pile of stones. So this is, this, this is like the most podunk place you can possibly imagine, born of pain. People think of it as just a pile of rocks, right? So 13 miles away, <clears throat> verse 11, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the walls of Bethshan. And they came back to Jabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. <clears throat> Why? What's this story about? Like, what's, what's going on here? You have the Philistines have just conquered the whole region, they've, they've killed the king and his sons, and, and they've hung them on a wall, and now these guys risk everything, risk everything just to go recover Saul and his son's bodies, to go back, burn them, hide them, and hide and dig, bury them under a tree so the people could remember where they were buried, but it's not a place of honor, and that happens later. So this is, a, this is a fascinating little story. What's going on here? Well, I'm glad you asked. You remember, you remember a few chapters ago, there was a guy named Nahash, and he encircled, he besieged a city of Israel. And he told them, if you will poke out all of your own right eyes, I might let you surrender. So I'm going to come in and take you and destroy you, absolutely destroy you. The only way I'll even discuss surrender with you is if you take out your own eyes. I want to guess at what city that was? That was Jabesh Gilead. And Saul raised an army and came and defeated Nahash. 
These are the men who owe their eyes or their lives to Saul, and they know it. Decades later, I really like these guys. They've not always been that likable. No wonder they're willing to risk so much. We see that yet again, when Saul does do something right, it pays off. When he actually does what God has called him to do to live as king, it pays off. They seem to have been the kind of men we would admire, mainly because they have learned. As As a city, they've grown and they've learned. They've learned how to not be afraid. This isn't our first or even just second time of meeting them. When we meet them, the first time was way back in Judges. The Benjamites commit this horrible sin against Israel and against God, and all the people of Israel rise up and say, we will not tolerate this. We are going to put the Benjamite tribe down. They nearly exterminate the tribe of Benjamin in this situation. But one city refused to go fight against the evil of Benjamin, and it was Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead excused the sin of Benjamin, and they, nearly, they really suffered for it. In fact, they nearly got wiped out because of it. In the end, so we see them, one, tolerating, not standing against sin, not standing up and taking a courageous stance. We see them, with, when they're being attacked later, not standing up and taking a stance, not calling on the Lord. But here, we see that they finally learned, and they've grown, and now in an act of desperate courage, just to rescue the body of their king. No wonder they're called valiant men. Unlike the men of Jabesh Gilead, Saul does not seem to learn. It's one of his greatest character flaws is he can't learn from his victories or his defeats. He can't seem to grow up ever. It's one of the number one problems with us as men in particular. I often say after about age 21, most men don't learn any new skills. And it's because we're too embarrassed. We don't want to look silly. We don't look stupid. We don't, we don't learn anything new because we're afraid of how dumb we'll look as we fail at it and fail at it and fail at it while we're trying to learn it. Um, it's a real struggle for our families that we can't, are not willing to look foolish to learn things. By the way, this city becomes blessed and prosperous under David and Solomon. By the time of Solomon, it has grown from being just a pile of rocks to being a very real and dominant city. God really rewards them. Meanwhile, Saul... Here we are, all these years later, Saul has accomplished at the end of his life, essentially nothing. When we start the story, the Philistines are dominant. They've taken over um, the tabernacle. They've stolen the Ark of the Covenant. They are the dominant power in this region. Decades later, as Saul dies, they are the dominant power in the region. What a wasted life in so many ways. He's really accomplished almost nothing. I have a friend who tells a story uh, of his father's retirement, uh, being at his father's retirement party. And when asked to describe his own career, his father described his career as no hits, no runs, no errors. That's no way to live. His treasure is invested in his own foolish desire, no significance, so it's no surprise that his heart is placed in himself If you invest your treasure in yourself, your heart will be with yourself. And when that person dies, it doesn't really have any significance. Will we get to experience what grows in heaven from the seeds we plant here? Or do we just plant seeds here which are destined to die? I thought about doing a whole sermon. In fact, I've been tempted someday I may write a book on on leadership, but basically have it be unleadership about the life of Saul. All the different things that Saul did badly and led so poorly. Um, What could he have done differently? You could write a whole sermon. I've just picked a couple. One, 
He could have obeyed God. That would be a good place to start, right? And how many of our lives is that where we probably need to start? That if we look at our lives and we go, okay, in what ways am I disobeying God right now? Well, I probably ought to just like start obeying God in those areas then. Wouldn't that be a good, that'd be a good place to start changing my life? Would be to go, what if I started obeying God in the ways that I'm not obeying God? It's amazing how often, as if you have kids, I don't know if you guys ever do this, but sometimes we, we start over, we do over things in our family. When things don't go super well, we go back to the beginning and we go, why don't we all try again, right? Let's do this whole thing over again, see if we can do it better. Typically, one of the things that needs to change in the do-over is, and this time, why don't you obey mom when we go through the do-over, right? Obeying mom is a good choice. We, it's amazing how often we ask God, like, give me insight, give me wisdom, give me whatever, but we're not obeying him in the things we know to do now. Why would he give us more? We've been going through the men's Bible study on God's will, which has been really cool, and, and I love the fact that the point of it is God's will is clearly communicated. Why don't we obey the things in God's will that we know then maybe God will reveal more details about the rest of our lives after that. So that's one. He could have obeyed God. Two, and I consider this a true, just heartbreaking, he could have listened to others. He could have trusted all the trustworthy people he was surrounded with. Think about the people Saul is surrounded with. One of the greatest prophets and teachers of all time, Samuel, one of the holiest men. I mean, he's often ranked like it's, it's Moses and then it's Samuel. And it's kind of like they're right there together He's surrounded. He's got David. He's got Jonathan. And somehow he manages to not be influenced by these people. Let's not work so hard to not be influenced by the godly and wise people around us. That might be a good one. Skip Heitzig adds another one. Take his sin seriously. Isn't that a tough one for us? We don't like to. We excuse our sin. We tolerate our sin. Our sin makes sense to us or we wouldn't do it, Right? I mean, we all, we all deal with that with life. When I step over my shoes in the house, it's because I know, well, there's a reason for that. I'm just going to be putting them on in a few minutes, right? That's, there's, I mean, that makes good sense that my shoes are sitting right there in the middle of the floor. Now, there's no excuse why anybody else's shoes would be in the middle of the floor, right? They're kidding, they're leaving the shoes out. Like that's a, we can always excuse our sin because we have some reason for committing it. We're doing that, whatever. But here, let me give you an example. It, it is impossible to really unwrap the consequences of Saul's sin. Here's just one. Jonathan is now dead. And I want you to think about the consequences of Jonathan being dead. David's best friend, the one who loves him, who encourages him, who, who, who lifts him up, strengthens him in the Lord, someone who loves him enough to tell him the truth, to speak truth to him, and this friend is dead. David loses a friend who loves him, and he ends up with a friend like Joab. The nearest thing he has to a friend is this guy named Joab, who will seek, we would see in the next book, only seeks to hook his wagon to David's star. Doesn't love David. There's going to come a day when David doesn't go to war with his men when he's supposed to, and he falls into sin. I always imagine that moment differently if Jonathan had been there. David sends the men off to war. They get about an hour outside of the city. Jonathan looks around, who's probably his general in charge of the whole army, and he goes, hey, where's David? And someone says, David decided not to, not to come with us today. And Jonathan, under David's authority, but more importantly, his friend, I think would probably have said, hmm, you guys go on ahead. David and I will catch up in a few minutes. And then he'd gone back and had a very tough conversation with David in his throne room. Even bigger than that, can you imagine if down the road, Uriah, we have the situation with Uriah, 
Bathsheba and Uriah, and, and, and David says, sends a note with Uriah to Joab saying, hey, put Uriah in the front lines, then pull back and let the enemy kill Uriah. Can you imagine that note in Jonathan's hand? That note turns up in Jonathan's hand, and Jonathan is like, what? Um, hey, you guys pull back for a little bit. I've got a problem I need to go take care of. And it's not Uriah whose life is at risk now. It's David's going toe-to-toe with his best friend over, what is this? I don't think David would have ever sent it because he knows exactly what Jonathan would do. What does it cost us to not have a friend like that? Saul's sin is what leads to that consequence. I'm telling you, one of the most misunderstood things in today's world is the power and meaning of actual friendship. It is lost on the vast majority of Americans, and sadly, American Christians don't understand the actual power of friendship. Years ago, um, my boss at Pine Cove asked us each to go home and ask our wives this question. If I suddenly went nuts, like if I started doing really dumb, sinful, evil, wicked, whatever thing, like if I just started spiraling off, is there anyone who you could send to confront me? Is there anyone who you could send to confront me? And Ginger just laughed. She was like, the list of people who would love to confront you under those circumstances is so long. She's like, I got a million people I could call. Be like, Former Young Guns alone would be like, how do I sign, where do I sign up, Right? We need people in our lives who will speak the truth to us. We need people like that. We need friends, people who love you enough to encourage you when you need it, who hold your arms up when you need it, and who can confront you when you need it. So how do we end this well? I want to I steal one more thought from Alistair Begg. I had written this out, and I knew I wanted to end with this conversation about Saul ending well, about Saul finishing his life poorly and why that was the case. And I didn't know, I couldn't wrap it into words and, uh, and had written this out and was like, how do I connect this the way I want to with this passage? And Alistair saw something that I had missed. Verse 6, 31 verse 6 begins this, thus Saul died. It's not then Saul died, it is thus Saul died. This was how he died, alone. Thus Saul died with his three sons and his armor bearer and his men. He took all these people with him when he went. The Hebrew word here, wa, is translated here, thus. It, 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 there's a lot of different places it can be, a lot of ways it can be used, but, but maybe we ought to put our names in here. Thus Chris died. What is that going to mean? Thus, put in your name, died. What will your death look like? Well, one, it will look a lot like your life. Whatever it's been will be defining in your death. Um, I, I hate this, this model. We saw it, I saw it again this week in a movie. I just want to scream at the TV when I see this. This whole, um, you're, you're, you know, whoever this died, they're not dead. They're not really dead so long as, and they always feel like they got to touch the other person's chest, right? So long as you have them here, right? What? Seriously? Like this is, no, I'm sorry, they're dead. Like they're de- you hold the fact that you remember them doesn't make them not dead. They're dead. Are we in that much denial about death in this culture that we go? They're not really dead as long as you remember them. Well, then they'll be dead soon because you won't remember them long. Can anybody name their great grandparents or their great great grandparents? If you're trusting in human beings to remember you and then that's your legacy, brother, I encourage you move on to something else. The, the human beings are terrible. But how, how often do we, we how, when I was talking about pain and grief and suffering, how, for, many, how, for how many of us is that because of dementia in our lives or in the lives of someone that we love? Listen, as a therapist, I will tell you, when you and your spouse get into a fight 
and you remember something differently, do you know what the evidence is? You know what the research proves? You know who remembers it well? Neither of you. Neither of you remember it accurately. It's, human beings are terrible at this. We're truly miserable at, at remembering. Oh, that's my, I'm supposed to trust you to remember me? What a joke. Why would I trust you for that? It's, it's stop pinning your hopes on the memory of human beings. Stop pinning your hopes on human beings at all. We hate passages like this. We don't want to think about death. And Jonathan and Saul and those who have come to, we've come to know this year, we deny it. We pretend like it doesn't matter. We pretend like it doesn't exist. So let's take a moment and follow one of our disciplines here, whether you know I do this or not, as a discipline, and that is that we don't just identify with the hero, but we identify with the antagonist as well. We identify with the bad example, and that's Saul. For Saul, what is our life going to have meant? We fear death in this culture. Some of us fear other things even more, which is ridiculous, looking foolish or crazy, rejection or isolation, boredom, or even spiders. Of course, listen, we ought to honor the good gift of life. We ought to honor it. We ought to stay alive in the hope that there's some good we can still do. There's one more person we can love. There's one more person we can be loved by. This life is a gift, and we should never squander it. Every moment of it, we should live it to the full and seize that day. It's never our desire for anyone to suffer in this life, and we all work diligently as a family to help one another avoid it. But in the end, suffering is okay because there is something else better coming. Finishing well is an ambition that all humans should have. How many people have undermined their entire lives with just the last few years or what comes out about them after they've died? Living well, abundantly as Christ calls us to, is a responsibility and a gift for all of us. Live well, finish well, die well. Jim Elliott said a lot of brilliant things, but actually my personal favorite that Jim Elliott, thing that Jim Elliott said was this. Make sure when it comes time to die, all that you have left to do is die. However, this is the truth as though this is. Your death will not be defined only by your past life. But for us as Christ followers, it's best defined by our future life. The gospel is that Jesus Christ triumphed over even death. Death is not an ending of life for those who know him. It is the beginning of life. Now, if you're an agnostic or an atheist, you're going to say, Chris, you're just afraid of the cold, hard truth of death. I don't think so. I don't think I'm afraid of it. I don't think I'm afraid of the cold, hard truth of death. I just don't care. If life is nothing more than biochemicals, if that's all that we are, if we're just meat sacks with biochemistry running around, and that someday my brain is just going to stop waving and I'm going to cease to exist, then honestly, I don't care if you remember me. I'll be dead. If there's nothing more to our relationships than just some kind of biological desires, then who cares? What's the point of that? I'll be dead, and then someday you'll be dead, and no one will know or care. We're no, different than, if we're no different than just every other amoeba that's out there, just a little bit more complicated. I'm not afraid of what that would mean, because if that's the truth, I won't care, and I don't care. 
But the truth is, I believe that there's something more to that. My instinct tells me there's something more to that. My thinking and rationality tells me there's something more to that. My intuition tells me there's something more to that. History tells me there's something more to that. God's Word tells me there's something more than that. I believe that there's something more to life on earth than just life on earth. If there isn't, then who cares? My prayer for you is that you would invest this life that you have in eternity that you would follow Christ and invest in Him so that your heart will be there in eternity and you can live an abundant life that starts the eternal life now. We don't have to wait till death to live an abundant eternal life. We could start that now. I beg you, invest your life in forever. Choose eternal life. If you will, stand with me. Our assumption is that God's Word is spoken to us and that, and that the example of even a bad example like someone like Saul in this situation inspires us to see there's something more. And we need to get hold of it. Who am I investing in? How am I investing? Our prayers that this invitation would be a time for you to engage with God. Is there a place of disobedience? Is there something going on that we need to focus our attention in a new way? That's my prayer. And it's not just mine. Here's John, the Apostle John in his first letter starting in chapter 5. By the way, at this time of invitation we have that we're singing, in case you don't know, um, if you need someone to pray with you or want someone to pray with you, I will be up here. There'll be people in the corner who would love to pray with you. If you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, you can do that also during that time and come let us know. Um, But my prayer, our prayer always is that what you're doing is listening to that still small voice of the Spirit to see what the Spirit has for you today. Here's what John wrote. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. God's very words.